Welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast, your go-to source for professional insights in the long-term care industry. Hear from leaders and experts as they share current and practical insights to help make the most of your day. I've been a long-term care financial specialist. What that means is I help people plan for the inevitable. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to think about getting old, but it's possible that someday we might need a little bit of care. Here's your host, nursing home administrator turned podcaster, Shmuel Septimus. Welcome back to the Nursing Home Podcast, your go-to podcast for all information related to the post-acute space to nursing home care. My guest today is Mike Smith. Mike is the Division President at Marquee Health Services and someone who I've known for quite some time and I'm really excited to have him on the show. Mike, welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yes, it's a pleasure. Thank you for making some time uh, to come on today. I know you have a busy schedule today. Um, just for our guests and for our, for our listeners, rather, who don't yet know who you are and they're not familiar with who you are, can you just give them a brief overview so they know who they're talking to? What is your background? How did you end up where you are today professionally? Well, um, Phil, thanks, thanks for asking. So I, um, I'm, I'm a registered nurse, and I'm the division president at Marquee Health Services. My story goes back... Uh, really all the way to right when I first got out of high school, I started, which was in 1991, way back in the 90s. Uh, I started out as a housekeeper. I worked in housekeeping as a floor guy for uh, approximately three years. After being in housekeeping, I, uh, I said to my dad, I would like to be a nurse, I think. And he kind of looked at me and said, a nurse, are you sure? And uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't sold right away. So uh-huh. he said I should work as a CNA. Back then it was a, a, an aide. It wasn't, we weren't CNAs back then. So I, he, he said I needed to work as an aide for six months. So I worked as an aide for, um, for the next three years. Absolutely loved it. I, were, I absolutely loved being an aide. And uh, during that time, went to nursing school, became a registered nurse, and started out in a hospital in Reading, Pennsylvania. Uh, worked in the surgical intensive care in the recovery room there for a few years. And then my wife, uh, she kept coming back to me uh, with more and she was pregnant yet again and said, I need to make more money. So I mm-hmm. said, I said, well, I'll, I'll see if I can get some overtime. And she, then she pulled out a newspaper ad because back then you had newspaper ads uh, for jobs. And it was a nursing home in Pennsylvania. And it actually paid $4 an hour more. So I looked at her and said, I don't know about this nursing home thing, but you know, you know how it goes. So I went and uh, I showed up and they hired me on the spot, which I know that never happened in nursing homes. Uh, And I was hired as a uh, unit manager, uh, which was really code for work the cart every day. So I worked uh, as a charge (laughs) nurse uh, and actually I did not have a day off the first uh, month, literally for 20, I believe it was 26 straight days, including Saturdays and Sundays. I worked every single day. Um, So my wife was happy with the money at that point because that was a lot of money coming in. And um, then, you know, how things go in nursing homes, one thing led to another, became an RNAC. And uh, after being an RNAC for about a year and a half. Wait one second, what's an RNAC? Just explain. Oh, it's no, no, that's an MDS coordinator or registered nurse assessment coordinator. So I was a, um, that's, that's what they called them in Pennsylvania at that time was an RNAC. Mm-hmm. So I did MDSs and did that. That was a great job. I, I was pretty good at it. I was fast at it and enjoyed it. And then was asked um, to be a, a director of nursing. So I got my first director of nursing job and did that for about a year. 
and uh, they asked, uh, back then I was working for what was known as Beverly Healthcare. And they asked me to go and help out in buildings all over the state of Pennsylvania. I got an opportunity to do that and learned a tremendous amount about about the regulatory side and the clinical side of long-term care over the next several years. I worked as a regional nurse for two years for a company called Extendicare. Uh, after doing that, somebody chalked me into doing uh, an administrator's license. So I ultimately got my administrator's license and got an opportunity to go back and be the administrator of the building where I was initially hired and worked for years as a charge nurse and an RNAC and oh, a guest nice. developer. Yeah, it was really great. And and I, I absolutely, we had a great building. I was fortunate enough to be extremely successful financially. And I remember um, right away, it was really very quick that we were financially very, very successful and the building had not historically been. And uh, the operators, you know, my bosses at the time would say, how, how are you doing this? And I said, guys, I got to be honest, compared to running nursing, this is cake. <laughs> all I got to do is, uh, well, back then it was pretty easy. I said, all I have to do is trim my labor a little bit, watch my overtime, make sure my rates are where they need to be and keep the building full. This is the easiest thing I've ever done. And, and honestly meant it compared to running clinical. So to this day, I always say uh, the DONs, uh, um, I'm always a little nicer to the DONs and the administrators. So after being, uh, after being a, um, administrator for not very long, honestly, it was probably about three years. And actually the number one EBITDA variance in uh, Golden Living. So that there was hundreds of buildings back then. By then, Beverly had turned into Golden Living. And, uh, and I, I had the number one and number two in the first two years. So I was recruited to a company called Guardian Elder Care, which is a rather large Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio company. Um, and I, I was my first uh, director of operations role. And I, again, learned a tremendous amount from those guys. They were great. Did that for about four years. Uh, really had a blast. I did a lot of driving around, very rural buildings. I learned about rural and how to recruit staff and, and uh, just learned a tremendous amount from those guys. They're really smart operators and good people. And then uh, got, got a little tired of being on the road. So I went um, and uh, worked for uh, one of the top commercial risk management companies in the country, the Graham Company in Philadelphia. And they had recruited me heavily for about two years, and I finally uh, thought I'd give it a shot. And I worked there for about eight months and learned a lot from those guys. They're great guys. They're still friends. I, I still talk to them a lot. But, but really, uh, one Sunday, I was meeting with uh, these very nice uh, people I'd heard about from Marquee Health Services and Trico. And um, I met with a gentleman named Norman Rokish. And Norman, I, I will always tell the story. He poured a magic potion in my ear. The next thing I knew, I was back working in uh, long-term care and loving every minute of it. So I was hired in 2015 to be their RDO for what was at that time five buildings. And uh, as of today, I believe I oversee 21 buildings for them. So wow. we've grown. We've grown and been very successful. You know. Um, you know, God has been very good to this organization and to the people that we work with. We have a phenomenal team over here, and we just acquired uh, three three in Virginia this week. So I'm actually standing in Virginia right now, and uh, we're we're really excited about about the future and what the future holds. So wow. thanks thanks again for asking me on today. Yeah, no, no, that, that is fascinating. So I will tell you that, um, as you know, you know, my background is being a nursing home administrator as well. And uh -huh. I always, always, I, I listen, uh, we've spoken numerous times in the past, and I did not know a lot of the things you just shared. I really appreciate that. Um, but I, mm -hmm. I always love watching someone start from the very, very bottom and make their way to the top. 
because those are the people who are most capable, able, determined, driven, experienced, knowledgeable, talented, and they're the best decision makers when they reach roles like you are in right now. They know what they could relate to. So you walk into a building and you talk to an aide, you talk to a floor tech, you talk to anybody in the building, you can relate to them exactly where they are because you know exactly where they are because you were there. Even maybe, you were, maybe there were some roles in the building that you didn't do but you would spend so much time in so many different levels within this yeah. industry and other industries that, you know, that makes, and I'm not just saying this to, to toot your own horn. I'm saying this as a general rule in nursing home care and really in any organization that, you know, doing it the long, hard way, working away from the bottom to the top, really makes for very, very qualified leaders. Now, we're just moving right on to the next part. I know that uh, we did, I, I just recorded a podcast yesterday with Morty Eisenberg from Tapestry mm-hmm. here. And we, we spoke a lot about telemedicine and I know that that, that is something we, that we want to cover as well. So tell me a little bit of why you're interested in applying telemedicine to the long-term care field and what are you actually doing about it? Let's start with the first thing. Okay, so the, the first thing is, if you look, you look at my background. So I'm I'm a nurse. So to this day, I will always, you know, my kids will say, "Dad, what do you do?" I always say, "I'm a nurse." It's a lot, first of all, it's the easiest thing to explain. <laughs> but, <laughs> so there's a, but when you look at what happens to our residents when they go to the hospital, like what is it like? To start with experience, and then we'll get to the financial. Both both incredibly important. Um, if we look at the experience of a resident, you know, whether, you know, we'll even put dementia aside because that's even worse if that's involved. But just a, a typical resident comes into our facility, you know, has to go through the rigmarole of being on a litter probably too long. Some hopefully polite person wheels them in, but you never know for sure from the ambulance company. They get mm-hmm. plopped in bed. We hope and pray that the nurse doesn't roll their eyes at them when they get there, and then they get they get through the admission process. Then we we usually because it'll be eight o'clock at night, they haven't eaten yet, so somebody maybe gets and gets them a sandwich and something to eat, and then they go through day one. Then we get their meds in, everything's going well, and then they go to the hospital on day five or six. We've then it all starts over for them. Putting aside the fact that they had some major medical thing go wrong, just from an experience perspective, that's nobody wants that that setback. So as a, as a nurse, what I, what I know from years and years of being a nurse on the floor, dealing with doctors on the phone myself, dealing with doctors as a director of nursing after the return to hospital, what has been a problem forever in our industry has been that a nurse is either A, ill-prepared or unable to give a concise assessment to the on-call physician. Or the other end of the problem could be that the nurse Let's say I give a perfect report, the nurse, but still the physician partner on the other end of the phone doesn't know the resident. And at the end of the day, wants to go back to playing golf, watching TV, spending time with his or her family, watching a movie, whatever they're doing, they want, they, their primary goal is to get back to that, not to be on the phone to solve this problem. So everybody's working not in the best interest of the patient, especially on the weekends and off shifts. So the concept of telehealth has been around for quite a while. What several providers, Tapestries One, that, that, that have come out, and they've put together models that make a lot of sense. So we work with prim- primarily three providers, um, and we're, we're working towards, and the reason I work with three, and I'll get into that, is I think it makes sense to not put all your eggs in one basket and really assess and look at what each company's strengths are. 
But the third-party vendors that we work with, the one thing they all have in common is that from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m., Monday through Friday, mm-hmm. and then the entire weekend, Saturday and Sunday, they take call for the attendings. So instead of the disinterested uh, physician who doesn't know the patient, is doing it probably because he or she is the junior person or it was just their turn being on call, you know, gets the call and says, okay, well, send them to the ER. Now we have trained hospitalists that their whole job is to keep people in-house. It, it, really, it really turns the paradigm. Um, you know, I'm good friends with Dick over at uh, Communicare, and they've seen dramatic, dramatic drops in their return to hospital rates, as have we in our centers that have really bought into the telehealth model. Um, we have a building in Baltimore, Westgate Hills, that was running well over 25% every month. I mean, it was embarrassing. 25% hospitalization rates? Yes, yes, it was absolutely embarrassing, and they run they run between ten and fifteen percent now. So, and they they have fully implemented the telehealth model, and they they make it work. The physicians bought in. It's good. And, and again, implementation. We can talk about that if you guys have questions on that. But it really implementation involves you have to have a DON that buys in, and then the nursing staff will buy in, and then your your physician partners need to buy in, and then also the corporate office needs to buy in, or whoever the, the support system is. In our case, we like to think of ourselves as support. So we need to buy in to get to, to, to gently remind and push to make sure they're using it. Uh, initially, in any uh, telehealth rollout, there are residents that go to the hospital, and telehealth wasn't called, and then the question is, why not? And in most cases, it was not an emergent transfer. It was just, oh, I forgot, or, oh, oh, yeah, we're supposed to do that, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, so w- what would happen in the past if it's 9.30 at night and, you know, the new admission rolled in and, um, you know, maybe, maybe the new admission came in at 7 or whatever time, then all of, you know, the nurse is doing rounds and they see something, that you know, some sort of change in condition. They're not sure exactly what's going on and they don't want it to be on their watch. So what would happen in the past and now what does telehealth change? So just that simple process, um, the admission comes in and um, in the past what would happen was you would struggle even to get a hold of a doctor, even if nothing went wrong, just to get your orders approved. Because as, as, a, as a nurse, we have to get the hospital transfer orders approved. Now, some buildings, you know, docs are like that, and they're right on it, and it's not an issue. Other buildings, certainly, it's an issue. It can take hours, all of which delays getting, then you have to get the stuff from the pharmacy. Telehealth actually covers routine orders as well. They cover it all, soup to nuts, from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. So in the event of an adverse finding uh, where a resident comes in and isn't doing well, starts to desat, they are clinically trained, because they're all hospitalists, to start giving you solutions. And when what I've found in any building that has a great unplanned hospitalization rate, and we have several, is that the, the physician partners, and in this case, the telehealth becomes part of the physician partners, they take the time to train the nurses. No nurse ever went to nursing school in the history since Florence Nightingale. No nurse ever went to nursing school and said, how can I learn to take bad care of my patients and treat them poorly? It, it, mm-hmm. it, that doesn't mean things don't go wrong, but that never once has happened. Right. So if, if we will take the time and if our physician partners will take the time and understand that nurses, at we are, it is ingrained in us from the time we go to school to respect and revere physicians. Doesn't mean we don't ever roar eyes at them, but, but <laughs> that, that is, so if a physician will take the time 
to stop and, and explain to Nurse Mike or Nurse Betty or Nurse Joan, this is what you should do. You know, put your head of their bed up, turn the oxygen on at two liters. Let's get a blood pressure. Let's get an apical pulse. Let's listen to lung sounds. What are you hearing? Okay. All right. Okay. Based on that assessment, let's order a nebulizer. Let's uh, put a SAT. Let's get a SAT. Okay. The SATs are fine. All right. Let's check this, these O2 SATs in two hours and we'll order nebulizers Q4. Call me back if anything goes wrong. Versus I have a frantic call from a nurse comes in and goes, doctor, I, I, she, she, she can't breathe. Well, what's any doctor going to do? I mean, what would I do? I mean, I have a vested interest in people staying in the building because we'll get into the financial side of this. Um, and, I, it, you know, I would say, yes, send them out. What do you want? You know, <laughs> what are you waiting for? God, they're going to die. So a, a tremendous amount of this is in the, the communication. Isn't most of life about communication? And I think it's just a yeah. huge part of the problem with unplanned hospitalizations. So now the telehealth partners, not only, you know, they can really, any physician could take the time and train the nurses and instead of a frantic call, the patient's not breathing, you know, they could give, you know, a better report, but uh, uh, with the mm -hmm. telehealth system, the, the doctor is actually present and sees exactly what's going on and the nurse can right. actually, you know, and they can even examine it further. Now, now my question is, if this works so well, should this replace physicians completely? In other words, it would almost sound like the care that they would receive from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. from a physician standpoint would be better than from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Is that correct? That's, that's actually a great question. And people have, we have not tried that yet, but I have talked to a provider and had pretty lengthy conversations where they went to a 24-7 model of telehealth managing the patients. Um, we have found that our hesitation to do that, and that doesn't mean we won't ever do it. Um, in fact, we are, I, I would guess that we will do a trial this year uh, in one of our centers. Um, the, the, the hesitation is that the, the attending physicians uh, are hesitant to give up, you know, completely on their patients because that almost outsources it completely. Um, but no, people have done it. I know I've talked to the guys at Communicare. They've done that in several centers and had a really good outcomes. No, uh, no. Fortunate to I'm, I'm sorry, just kind of, uh, why does it matter what the attending physicians right now, you know, if they're, why do you need the attending physicians at all? That's my question. Is there, is there what, a necessity? Is there a regulation that you must have a doctor on presence at all? Or is it okay to go completely to telemedicine? No, I, I, my understanding is that it is, it is allowed from a regulatory perspective to go completely telemedicine. I know rural buildings have done that really for mm -hmm. some time. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's actually a model in which there are medical directors that are via telehealth that only mm -hmm. come into buildings quarterly for, for extremely rural buildings. I don't, I don't right. have any that fit that criteria. Um, the, the, really, the hesitation with the attendings is a business development concern more than a clinical concern. And okay. certainly, as we talk about, you know, in what we do, we're forced to always balance, right? We want to get excellent clinical outcomes. That's our first thing. That's our product at the end of the day is excellent clinical outcomes. Um, it's important, however, to remain engaged with our physician partners as we deal with more and more closed hospital systems. You yes. know, back in the day when I was, you know, earlier in the, in the, uh, in the conversation when, when we were talking about my, my experience when I was an administrator. Back then, I literally would walk across the street at lunchtime and pop in on Mark, who was the CEO of the hospital. I knew all, I mean, I had complete access over there. 
I will tell you that in probably now 60%, 70% of our markets, we can't even go in the hospitals without a specific purpose and meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's parts of New Jersey where, you know, I'm convinced that Ned will fall on the liaison's head if they try and sneak in, you know, <laughs> it's a uh, um, little bit facetious there, but so, I mean, it's, uh, so let's, uh, let's jump yeah, just over here for, just for the sake okay. of time. Let's jump to the financial side of this. So uh, telehealth is, you know, the technology is amazing and the, you know, it's marrying technology with a practical application, which is what's really exciting and, uh, you know, and industry changing when it comes to telemedicine, specifically in nursing homes that have always suffered from insufficient or you know, un, maybe not the highest quality physician oversight. But now from a financial standpoint, who pays for this? And how does, what type of toll does that take on the nursing home's bottom line? So the, the expense is relatively small. Uh, it tends to range from 2,500 per month to as high as 5,000 per month I've seen. Um, in, in a flat rate. And then there is often a per encounter fee. So uh, the two partners that I work with the most, they, um, they have a per encounter fee that is nominal. I think it's $50. So uh, what, what qualifies as an encounter? An encounter would be when they actually turn on the machine and, and come in and view the resident and do the physician does the assessment. What's interesting, and I think most people would not expect this, is that in the vast majority of cases, no encounter is required. They just simply speak to the nurse. The nurse performs a relatively routine assessment and gives a report, and then they give orders. And very similar to the traditional model, where where the telehealth part is just there as sort of a backstop. Um, It's certainly not something that we either, we don't manage in any way. We don't say, hey, try and limit your engagements. In fact, Mm -hmm. we encourage them to have more engagements because we feel that the benefits of an engagement are are, are good, that, that, you know, saving a return to hospital. And and from from a bottom line perspective, simply eliminating one unplanned hospitalization per month would more than pay for it. You know, simply the math on a Medicare is pretty simple. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at you're looking at a margin pickup right there just on one. So again, I think cost is a factor. You wouldn't want to you know necessarily go with the most expensive provider. But what what I look for, and I think this is this is worthwhile to discuss for a minute, when I select a partner is I know what our weaknesses are. I know that I have a great 3 to 11 supervisor at this building and I have a great one at that building, but at the other building, yeah, she's brand new and we're, we're really working with her. So what these partners that I have now have agreed to do is every evening, no matter what, seven days a week, they call in usually around 9 p.m. and check with the supervisor about our at-risk list. So what we do is generate a list of at-risk for unplanned hospitalization patients. Um, and we, we call it the at-risk list. Um, and it's usually new admits, but it could be anyone from, uh, and we don't just do like Medicare short term, we do everybody. Um, so if a resident is at risk, they go on this, this list. And what one of my goals has been is with all of this technology, all of the things that all of our nurses can do in these facilities, they, in my opinion is they've been driven behind the desk too much and we want to drive them back to the bedside. Nursing care is always done best at the bedside. You're not making anyone better behind a computer. 
that that's always been the case. So while technology is great and the idea behind technology is to save time, it was never designed so that instead of doing a bedside assessment, you could sit at a computer at a desk and do the assessment while not looking at the patient. So we came up with strategies over the last year or two years to try and drive the nurse back to the bedside. Mm -hmm. We feel that's incredibly important to get the nurse back to the bedside where he or she can make a significant impact on that resident's you know, stay. Um, so the at-risk list drives the supervisor and to a lesser extent the charge nurses back to the bedside. The DONs round on those patients every day. And then the telehealth provider, this is what got me on this topic, they call mm -hmm. in because they get a list of those at-risk patients and they'll say, how is Steve Anderson tonight? How is Amy Anderson tonight? How is John Smith tonight? They go through the list with the supervisor. So this has the unintended consequence of, again, driving that supervisor to look at that resident before because they know they're going to get a call from a doctor asking about those residents at nine o'clock. So that's, that's when you know you have a good partner because that's wow. not me doing that. That's my partner doing that so that, you know, and then I also have regional nurses that will do similar exercises. But, but in the telehealth centers, we find that to be very effective. Um, again, nothing's 100%. There will always be unplanned hospitalizations. As we all know in this industry, the residents are much sicker. This, the residents I take care of today, I don't even recognize compared to what I used to take care of. I mean, they are so much sicker. We never saw I, I, we have, as you know, we've got Millerone running in buildings. We have uh, LBADs, other inotropes running. We have, um, you know, to give IV Lasix when I started in this industry 20-some years ago. I mean, no one would have done that. And now it's quite routine. Well, well so just before we wrap up here, just, I mean, we're almost out of time here. The, the last question I wanted maybe just briefly touch on before we let you go is that mm -hmm. what, you, what you just mentioned is that we have this, you know, the extreme change in the higher acuity of patients, the community hospital, uh, if you will, of today, which is the nursing home. And we have the challenges with sometimes tightened reimbursement uh, from, from Medicare, you know, the change of the model of payment, uh, you know, we're struggling with our Medicaid patients. What do you see as the, the, the way forward to manage this process? I know it's a bigger question, but just maybe on a 40,000-foot view, how do you see operators managing to provide what you said is the critical product of excellent clinical outcomes while still being financially viable? I think that actually in many ways, even though it is more complex patients, the old rules still apply. That if you give quality service, and that if you take care of your staff, most nurses would prefer a high acuity patient to a lower acuity patient. It is, it is much preferable. I was actually presenting to a group yesterday of, of our team here, and I was talking about the difference between, you know, a resident hitting you in the head with a bedpan versus someone who's very ill and you're, you're literally keeping them alive. You know, it, it's incredibly fulfilling as a clinician to take care of a sick debilitated resident and feel that you are nursing them, like a better word, back to health, mm -hmm. restoring them mm -hmm. back to health. So it's incredibly fulfilling. And I think, so I think, and also with the new payment system, thankfully, we are finally getting credit for taking care of higher acuity patients. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's named PDPM for a reason, because it's patient. It went back to them acknowledging, CMS acknowledging that we didn't just have residents. Mm -hmm. that a, a significant part of what we do is take care of post-acute patients. 
Um, and we, we fill an important role there. So I, I don't, I believe that in balancing the staffing levels, but also the enthusiasm of, of the nursing staff is, is probably the number one thing that we can all do as providers. Keep them engaged and enthusiastic about what they're doing. Offer them opportunities to learn. You know, at Marquis, we do a number of specialty programs, and I think we do them better than anybody else. We, we, we focus on it intensely. Our ownership is very vested in it. Our corporate medical director puts a lot of attention into it. We all put a lot of attention into it, from my clinical team to, to you know, myself, to my operators. We put a lot of attention into our specialty programs. And one of the added benefits of the specialty programs, whether it be cardiac, pulmonary, renal, um, CKD, is that we find a tremendous amount of enthusiasm from the nurses as they get extra training. And really, that's sort of the hidden win in all this, is that when you have enthusiastic, well-trained staff, they don't leave, they're positive, and they get better outcomes. That's amazing. So that, that's an amazing point, and that could be a whole new uh, podcast episode, you know, maybe down the road. But I'll nurses sometimes in nursing homes as you know and you've worked alongside them um uh-huh. you know they, they can be caring for you know they're not really using the skills that they went to school for uh, yeah. in the past yeah. when they're having residents versus patients so yeah we're nurses we're in charge of the aids and we have certain responsibilities and assessments and we have things we need to do but it's different but when they're growing and they're like you said they feel like they're nursing literally you know, mm-hmm. so then you can you know that goes much further than a bump in their paycheck, which also should happen. But, but yeah. it, you know, it's just, just that much more effective. Uh, Mike, before we let you go, any final thoughts? Anything you want to share with us, uh, or where can they learn more about Marquis Health Services if people want to hear more, particularly about uh, what Marquis is doing? Well, first off, thank you so much for uh, for allowing me to be on today. It's been been, been fun. Um, we are the best, probably the best way for everybody out there is to follow us on Facebook. All of our centers have Facebook pages. I think we have incredibly vibrant social media activity. Uh, also on uh, LinkedIn, you can certainly follow me and, and Marquee Health Services on LinkedIn. And then our website is uh, MarqueeHealthServices.com. Okay. Awesome. Thank you, Mike, for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Have a great day. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Nursing Home Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with all of your friends in the nursing home industry and just tell them to head on over to thenursinghomepodcast.com. In the meantime, head on over to iTunes. Leave me an honest, wonderful review. Take a screenshot of it and I will send you a gift straight and special for you. Again, head on over to iTunes. Leave me an honest review. Take a screenshot of it and send it on over to me on LinkedIn. Now be sure that we send something out special just for you. Have an awesome day.